Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out through the sacrifice of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough that while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you for offering us eternal life and giving us all that we need in the Holy Spirit here on earth. And thank you for your word that we get to study now, Lord. I thank you for each person that's here. I pray that we as a family would have ears to hear what you would say to your church today, God that we would be obedient to your word, and that we would uh, walk in your ways. Father, bless this time as we glorify your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's the book of, however you say that. So, what would you say? Haggai. Haggai, okay. East Coasters, I've heard, say Haggai. You know, a couple of East Coast teachers that I listen to would say Haggai. I don't know why. But uh, that's what they say. And so I would probably say Haggai as well. Um, either way, we fig we'll figure it out when we see him. That's what I figure. <laughs> Hi, my name is... Oh, okay, Haggai. Okay. So not Mike and not Nahum, hopefully in Haggai. You found it in your Bibles? Yes. Well, I would encourage you to follow along. We are going to cover the whole book today, just two chapters, uh, as we go through them. Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophets... Minor not because their message is less than the major prophets, but minor because of the size of their book. Uh, Haggai, in fact, just being only two chapters long. The first nine minor prophets, there are 12 of them all together, the first nine are pre-exile prophets. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. The first nine are pre-exile prophets. That starts with Hosea. So it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, which we studied a couple weeks ago and Zephaniah. They all prophesied prior to Israel going to Babylon. Everybody tracking with me so far? The last three of the minor prophets, the remaining of the twelve, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exile prophets. They speak after the Israelites are permitted to come back to the land. A little bit of history before we get into it. God had called the nation of Israel to be different than the rest of the world. He called him, them his chosen people, and they were his people, and they, they were called to be holy, set apart unto him, different from the rest of the world. And rather than the people of Israel keeping their eyes on the Lord, which is what he wanted them to do, they sought to imitate the pagan nations that were around them. The first decision they made was they decided they needed a king. That's how King Saul comes on the land. They, 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 they were set up to be a theocracy, meaning God would be in control of their government. And that wasn't good enough for them. They said, no, give us a king. And God relented in that, and he gave them Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the line of the, the kings. That was the first step away from, their, from what God had prescribed. They began to leave God's prescribed way of life. One of the examples of that is, God had told them as an agricultural, agricultural nation that they were to give rest to the land. Every 
one in every seven years they want to plant, uh, let the land rest. And we know from agricultural science today that that's actually very good for the land. That every seven years or so in order to return the nutrients to the soil, uh, that the crops have depleted, you rest it. Now the way that farmers do it today is you know how they do it, they rotate crops. And so that you'll see corn and soy being flipped. And the reason they do that is so that the, the nutrients that the soy takes, the corn replaces. The nutrients that the corn place play, takes, the soy replaces. And so that's how they, that's how they give rest to the land today. But God said, no, you, you work the land six years and then you take a rest on the seventh year. You don't plant crops. And in that, God provided for them. They had an abundant crop every sixth year that would last them until the, the harvest of the eighth year. Well, they've started to walk away from that as well. And then ultimately, as we've learned through the book of Habakkuk and various other books, they fell into worship of idols and false religions. Remember, as we went through Habakkuk, we talked about the line of sediment in, the, 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 um, in, in Jerusalem's um, soil that shows where the Babylonians burned down the city of Jerusalem. And in that line of sediment, the blackened line of sediment, there is all kinds of idols and stuff that have been found. And so uh, they fell into worship of idols and false religions. We need to understand God is long-suffering. You've heard that before, that he is patient and he is long-suffering. He tried to woo the nation of Israel back for, to himself for 490 years. He has way more patience than you do, mom and dad. <laughs> Yet the nation of Israel was a stiff-necked people and they continued hard in the wrong direction. So in love, we need to remember that, God was forced to chastise them, and he used the nation of Babylon to do that. That's what we learned in the book of Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk said, like, God, what are you doing? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Remember that question and answer? And so um, he uses the nation of Babylon to bring chastisement, to bring correction. Give you a little bit of math. I know we shouldn't have to do math on Sunday morning, but it's kind of fun for me, so I like math. Take 490 years, divide it by 7, the, the time that they were supposed to give the rest, and you come up with huh? 70, right? 70 years. So the land had not gotten its rest for 70 years. Well, guess how long they're in captivity? 70 years, right. God's like, no, I'll get the rest out of the land. I'll give the rest to the land. And so the, they are carried off, hauled off to Babylon for 70 years. So, 70 years ago, King Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians, or 70 years go by, rather, the Babylonians take them into captivity, 70 years go by, and then Cyrus, who's king of the Medes and Persians, issues a decree permitting the people of Israel to go back to their home. And they begin to do so. They allowed God's people to return to their land. Listen to this. This is this was mind-blowing to me. Hundreds of thousands of them went into captivity. 50,000 returned. That means hundreds of thousands of them said Babylon is better than God's way. And I'm not going to return. That's mind-blowing. That hundreds of thousands of them chose, I'm going to choose, but we know that Babylon is a symbol of the world in the scriptures. Hundreds of thousands of them said, no, I'm going to stick with the ways of the world. Thank you very much. I'm not coming home. 
but 50,000 of them said, no, I want God's ways. And so they returned the remnant back to Israel. Initially, their hearts were ready to get after it. The wall was built in a short time. The city was leveled. Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the wall. And they got after it. They did it and just a, they accomplished it in just a few months. The story of Ezra is the rebuilding of the temple. And in the book of Ezra, we see that the foundation gets laid and the altar gets built. But then construction stops for 16 years. Today's 2018. What were you doing in 2002? Right? I don't know. 2002, that was half of you weren't born. Uh, you know, it's hard to remember what I was doing 16 years ago. So the foundation of the temple, the altar, lays dormant for 16 years. That's where Haggai rolls on the scene. That's where we pick up the story. Okay, everybody ready? Haggai 1.1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Time out? Real quickly. There are time stamps throughout the book here, uh, throughout both chapters, that tell us exactly when Haggai was on the scene. During the second year of King Darius. That's not the same Darius as the king in, in the book of Daniel. Different, different guys here. But it does tell us specifically we're talking about 520 B.C. 520 B.C. In the sixth month, it tells us, which is the month of Elul, E-L-U-L, which is our August-September kind of in there, okay? In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, we get this message. Haggai is a prophet. Just so we know, Haggai is the second shortest of the Old Testament books, only two chapters long. What's the shortest? Anybody know? I had to look it up. I didn't know either. Obadiah. 21 verses. And so, uh, Haggai the second shortest. But he is a prophet, and he's in this book, this short book, he's going to give us four good prophecies or good messages that we need to pay attention to. Remember, the office of the prophet in the Old Testament had a specific role. A prophet spoke on behalf of God to the people. That's the role of the prophet. And so he's going to share a message from God to the remnant who is there now back in Israel. It says there, continuing on, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, so this, is, this first message is given to two specific people. Zerubbabel, who is the governor of the land. He was politically in control of the land. And to Joshua, who is the high priest of the land. He's in control of the land spiritually. So these are the two utmost leaders at the time. Okay, Speaking to both the civil and spiritual leaders of, of the people. The first message, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord, I'm sorry, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So as they, now 16 years have gone by, and the foundation is now overrun with weeds, the altar has vines growing over it, it lays in waste and desolation, it hasn't been looked at or touched in a long time, the people were saying, well, it's just not time for construction yet. It's not that they didn't believe it should be done. They believed it should be done. They just believed that it wasn't the right time to do it. It's interesting. God says, 
Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says. Notice that? He doesn't say, My people say. Parents, do you do that? You just wait till your father gets home. And then when dad gets home, do you know what your son did today? <laughs> Suddenly he's your he's my son. Not just our he's not our son any longer, he's my son now. When he does something wrong. He does something well. Would you believe what my son did today? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's almost what God is doing here. Do you believe what this people is saying? They're no longer my people. But they're saying the time has not yet come. God is going to challenge that. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Oh, 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 wait a minute here. Now perhaps we see what's been going on the last 16 years. You know, I need to take care of my family first. God's stuff can wait. You know, uh, we, we've got limited resources, we've got limited time, and, 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 and now that we're back, we, we need to rebuild our houses, and rightfully so. The whole city was decimated. They did need to rebuild their houses, but not necessarily at the cost of not building the house of God. God challenges their thinking. You seem to have time and energy and resources to take care of your own home, but you don't have time to take time or energy or resources to give to God? So he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I love that phrase. Actually, in the original language, it would literally be translated, put your heart on the road. Put your heart on the road. And the idea is, think about which direction you're going. Think about what you're doing here. Look at what's happening. You're headed in the wrong direction. He says in verse 6, You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Anybody feeling that? <laughs> they say money talks. Mine just says goodbye. <laughs> right? Put it in a bag, it just falls out the bottom. The holes are called children. They just take all of their money. <laughs> they struggled through life because they didn't have their priorities set straight. Remember, these are the people that chose to come back from Babylon. These are the ones that said, no, I want to get closer to God. And yet, they still had their priorities mixed up. We can all get our priorities mixed up, so it's good for us to consider to put our hearts on the road. God allows us to struggle in this life because He loves us and wants us to consider our ways and reprioritize Him. Make Him our priority. Jesus says it this way, you're probably familiar with this, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little of faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. The rest of the world is like that. You don't be like that. 
For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. I'll take care of you, is what God is saying. I said this a few weeks ago at the men's study. I love that verse, seek first the kingdom of God. Everybody, we sang it for years in church, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus never says seek second. There is nothing else to seek. There is no later on seek these things. There's only one thing to seek after, and that's it. And he'll take care of us. When it comes to our resources, what's our resources? Our time, our energy, and our money. You can say it with three T's, our time, our talent, and our treasure. Okay, Time, energy, and money, time, talent, and treasure. When it comes to our resources, we are to prioritize the kingdom of God with them. And in doing so, he will bless the labor of our hands and meet our needs. I said this last week, I'll say it again this week. Remember, God meets our needs because he loves us. He exceeds our needs because he wants us to love others. God meets our needs because he loves us, but he exceeds our needs. He gives us more than we need because he wants us to love other people with our, our resources. That's what we're called to do. That's not what these people were doing in that day. They chose to prioritize themselves above the kingdom of God. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. So the command is then, get to work. Alright, let's start building the house of God. That's what He wants to happen. That's what God wants to see. We need to recognize that the labor of God is not purely spiritual. I'll pray about it. Well, that's good that you'll pray about it, but we need hands and feet too. We need people to put forth effort, to give of their time, to donate financially, to carry out the work of God. That's what it is to give of our resources. He says, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the new wine and the oil, on their crops. Whatever the ground brings forth, on men and on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. In other words, God said, I'm withholding my blessing so that you might see how deeply you need me. And it took Haggai speaking it for them to open their eyes. You ever feel like that? So sometimes you're like, why is this so hard? Why am I grinding? Why is this life against the grain so difficult? I feel like I'm trudging through mud. You, have you walked that walk? And you just can't figure out what's going on in life. And somebody speaks into your life and says, it's because of this. You need to get this right. You need to reprioritize this. And as soon as you're like, the light bulb comes on. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I was supposed to, I had committed to doing daily devotions with my wife. I forgot about, you know, serving at the shelter once a week or whatever like I used to. And life's been difficult since then. And God kind of gets our attention that way by allowing the difficulty to come. It took Haggai to open their eyes to see it. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Ding, ding, ding. Message heard. This is cool. They heard and obeyed. Children, they heard and obeyed. This is actually... I'm trying, guys. This is actually noteworthy because he's one of the few prophets that they actually listened to. Several of them they killed. A lot of them they just said, now we ain't listening to that message. Haggai's message is heard. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord's spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, "I am with you," says the Lord. And if our God is for us, who can be against us? I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month time stamp in the second year of King Darius. God stirs the hearts of the leaders. Rubble, get your people together. Civilly, let's put this together. God stirs the heart of Joshua, the high priest. Let's, let's ordain these. Let's, let's devote ourselves unto God. Let's serve him in this way. And then he stirs the heart of the people to say, yeah, let's do it. After 16 years of dormancy, they respond in 24 days. Yeah, let's do this. And they get ready to work. Message number 2, chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, so we've moved from Elul to now the, the month of Tishri. It's the seventh month. It's our September-October it's 27 days later from when they decided to start rebuilding. 27 days after uh, what was given in verse 15. It says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high... Do you get the sense God is very formal? He uses their entire titles every time. Just saying. <laughs> governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is, it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? God asks the question, and he's speaking specifically to the old people. And he says, hey, old timers, those of you that were in Israel before the Babylonian captivity, so this is 70 plus years, 80, 90, 100 year old people, and he, and he asked them a question. You remember how it used to be? You remember the old temple? How, do, how does this look in comparison to the old temple? Back in my day. We all fall into that trap. Today stinks in comparison to our memories of the old days. We fall into that trap all the time. But in this case, there is actually some truth to it. The temple they were rebuilding paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was physically far superior to what was being built. Ezra 3 gives us some insight. It says, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept 
with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So as they're laying the foundation in the book of Ezra, the old people are crying, weeping, because it pales in comparison to what was of old. The young people hadn't seen what was of old, and so they're excited about what's being, what's happening. Think about it for a second. You're building something that pales in comparison to something of old. That would be rather disheartening, wouldn't it? That's not, not as good. So why even bother? Why waste the time? Why waste the energy? And I think that's probably why the foundation lay dormant for 16 years. God encourages, verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Hey, God is with us. God is for us. If God is with us, who can stand against us? Let's keep up the good work. He's encouraging them. Don't worry about what you're building and how it compares to the things of old. The principle for you and I, if we waste our time, and I use that word intentionally, if we waste our time looking back at the past works of God, we are of no value to the present work of God. If we waste our time, remember how it used to be? Remember the Azusa Street Revival? Remember the early days of Calvary Chapel? Remember, remember, if we spend all of our time saying, remember the days of old, we are of no value to what's happening right here in this place right now. But God is doing a work now in this place. He wants our attention and he wants us here in present. That's why he's trying to get the attention of the people. Paul says it this way in Philippians. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forget those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget the things behind. It's beautiful what God has done over the years, and I don't want to devalue that in any way, but it's of little value to us now. What is God doing now? our hearts, in our lives, in this place, in this community. But it looks like it'll fail. Look at this. This looks terrible. You can hear the excuses of the people. You've said them in your own heart. I know I have. Why put forth the effort? This sucks. i put it bluntly. Think about Joshua. You know the story of Joshua? Joshua, the one who took the promised people, or took God's people into the promised land, rather. Do you understand what, how, what he was called to? He, he, he's called to usher them into the promised land at the age of 100. Hey, Joshua, you're going to be the one. Moses, he can't go into the promised land. He, he struck the rock twice. He, he sinned in this way. He's not allowed into the promised land. So, Joshua, you're going to be the one at the age of 100. And the way that Joshua was told was, hey, Moses, go get Joshua. To, uh, this is God speaking. Go get Joshua. Bring him here. Okay. 
Moses is told that the people are going to go into the land and their hearts are going to melt like wax and they're going to fail, they're going to turn away to idols and everything's going to fall apart. How excited do you think Joshua is? I'm going to take them into the land and they're going to screw it up. That's the message given to Joshua before he goes into the land. Joshua chooses to press on and lead the people into the promised land for the next seven years. He dies at 107. And despite appearances, he does that despite appearances that his mission was a failure. Why? Joshua was committed to the greater plan of God. It doesn't matter if our part looks like it's failing, so long as we're devoted unto God, because we're part of a greater plan. Though for a time our part might look like a failure in the divine orchestration, it will accomplish His will. So even when it doesn't look right in our eyes, continue to press forth in the work. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, Once more it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Notice that's capitalized, at least in the New King James. To the desire of all nations, that's a title of someone. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The only part of Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament are these verses uh, in Hebrews. It's either 12 or 13, I can't remember exactly. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God saying, remember, I'm sovereign over all things. I'm in control of all things. He says, I'm going to shake the nations. The Persians replaced the Babylonians. The Greeks replaced the Persians. The Romans replaced the Greeks. The Romans aren't around any longer. Nations rise. Nations fall. World powers rise. World powers fall. Hear that, America. The strongest nations of the world rise and fall at the hand of God. And he says that he will bring the desire of all nations. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to see the desire of all nations. That's a title for our Savior. His name, Jesus. Whether people recognize it or not, He's our greatest desire. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it won't be mere lip service. Every heart will say, no, He is the desire of our heart. Some, unfortunately, to their peril. And he says, I will fill this temple. Solomon's temple was beautiful. Lebanon's of cedar, beautiful wood, ornate ivory, gold overlaid everywhere. The way it was set, that when the sun was just right, it would shine into the temple, and it was almost like a, a beacon light would blast out through the doors. Just shone this glory. And it was, it was just beautiful thing, ornate, glorious thing. But the splendor of the temple isn't in its ornate decoration, but in its ability to reflect God. The splendor of the temple wasn't in how pretty it was, it's in its ability to reflect the glory of God. What's neat about that is today, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you and I are the temple of God. 
And our beauty comes not in how beautiful we are on inside or out, but on our ability to reflect the glory of God. Verse 8 says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. He has resources to accomplish his mission. He tasks us with something. He's like, I'll take care of it. I've got the Home Depot card. We're ready to go. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. He's like, don't worry about the way things look right now. This temple is going to be better than Solomon's temple. What do you mean? Well, this temple's better because Jesus came there. This is the temple that Herod rebuilds and builds onto and adds onto. It's the temple that's there when Jesus walks on the earth. It ends up being more elaborate than even Solomon's. Herod's temple was even grander than Solomon's. But the ultimate glory was that that's the temple that Jesus walked into. And that's why it's better. In this place I will give peace. Jesus is the one that brings peace. The ultimate peace. Message number three. Verse ten. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, so now we're into the ninth month. That's Kislev. That's November, December. Three months have passed since Haggai began speaking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, Well, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And then the priests answered, Well, no. If he had a piece of holy meat, they were permitted to have a portion of the sacrifice, and they would carry it in their robe. And so the question is, well, that piece of meat is holy, so then is if it touches something, does whatever it touched become holy? The priest says, oh no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, yes, it shall be unclean. So if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Here's the concept. Health is not contagious. You can't get healthy by touching somebody. But you can get sick by touching someone. Right? You can, you can, you know, uh, what's the word? Con contract, that's it, contract strep throat by giving somebody a hug that has strep throat. You... Sickness is contagious, but health is not contagious. Put that into spiritual application. Holiness is not transferable, but sin is. Holiness is not transferable, but sin is. Each of us individually need to commit to the plan of God, the mission of God, to strive for holiness and turn from sin. It's easy to fall into sin. You have to work to, to, to be holy. The work they were doing even in rebuilding the temple, was in vain because they hadn't taken care of their hearts first. Just standing in church does not make you a Christian. That's the idea here. Isaiah, quoting Isaiah, Jesus says in Matthew 15, these people draw near to me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. 
We can be busy with our hands for God, and yet our hearts are far away from Him. What do we do in that situation? Put your heart on the road. Consider your ways. That's what he says in verse 15. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before, st before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, but there were only 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord of hosts. Our principle, what we can take from that, is God will use difficult times. God will use dry seasons in our lives in order to turn us toward Him. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet yield, not yielded fruit. But from this day... I will bless you. From this day, I will bless you. Child of God, don't worry about the former days. Live in the present, not in the past. From this day, I'll take care of you. Almost done, guys. Message number 4, verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, so the same day as message number 3, speak to Zerubbabel, this message for one person. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strengths of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. He's like, it's all coming down. It's all going to come together. And this is kind of the beauty of prophecy is there are challenging times where we don't know if he's speaking about the immediate future or the, the, the time at the end of times. And there's a, there's a parallel here. We can see kind of both. But he calls him the signet ring. The signet ring was the authority of the king. They would wear it to put their, to, to put their seal on wax to, to close a, a command or a letter. They would seal it and mark it with their signet ring, knowing then that this was the authority of the king. And he's calling Zerubbabel the signet ring. Zerubbabel is an interesting tie from King David to Jesus. We know we need lineage. In Jesus' lineage, it has to go back to King David because God promised King David, you will always have an heir that sits on the throne. That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Zerubbabel is an interesting tie to King Jesus. He was the governor of the land, not the king, but he, his heritage goes back to, and the reason he was governor is because he could, it could be traced back to King David. His heritage could be traced back to King David. But looking forward, Zerubbabel is the last person who is in the lineage of Jesus through both Mary and Joseph. So the lineage of Jesus is, is given to us twice in the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. And in one of them, it's the, the lineage through Mary and his, his blood relative. And in 
the other it's the lineage through Joseph his his political parents and so God in his sovereignty said no I'll, I'll, I'll make both lines go back to King David well as they why from Mary and from Joseph as they go back toward David the place that they come together is rubble both Mary and Joseph can be traced back to Zerubbabel. And the principle of the fourth message is God will use us where we are, all for his glory. All we have to do is be faithful to his calling. So as we head into communion, just a summary of the four messages, okay? Message number one, prioritize God. Make him your priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. There is no seek second. Message number two, God is working now. Don't worry about what he did in the past. God is using us now. God is working in this place now, in and through us. Don't worry about old days. Message number three, holiness is sought, not caught. Holiness is sought, not caught. Are you in a dry season in your life? Has this been a difficult, challenging time? It's perhaps because God is using these difficult times to get your attention. And the fourth message, God's not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. It's not that I have all these talents, so God must use me in this way. It's more God use me in the way that you would see fit. Is there a work that God has called you to that has laid dormant for many years? I wanted to take care of these things first. I wanted to get my life right. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. We had to buy the house. We had to do these things. After we got all these things done, then we were going to devote ourselves to this ministry. No. If God's called you to it, He will see you through it. Today is the day that we're going to reprioritize our lives to say, God, whatever you want, you're first in my life. Amen? And that brings us to the communion table where He invites us to reprioritize our lives. We're just going to consider him for a moment. Uh, Noel and I are going to pass out the elements. You're welcome to take those and hold those if you would. I'll lead us through partaking in them. Um, so yeah, Noel, if you would. And uh, just uh, spend some time in prayer as we pass out the elements.
Lord, we thank you for the invitation to come to the table just as we are. That our righteousness, our, our righteous deeds are filthy rags in your sight anyway. We cannot compare to the perfection that you are. And that's the beauty of you sending Jesus. Your mercy poured out. Your grace given to us through the sacrifice of the cross. Lord, if we're in a dry season, if we've not kept you as our priority, Lord, we thank you for the call to reprioritize our lives, to rearrange things in our time, in our talent, in our treasure, to bring glory to your name. Maybe there's somebody here today that doesn't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Partaking in communion is a confession on our part to say that we are sinners who need a Savior. Perhaps today will be that first step of faith to say, yes, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want to make you my prayer. And recognizing that our sins are forgiven because he died on the cross for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples in the upper room, eating the Sabbath meal. And he took a loaf of bread, an unleavened loaf of bread, and he broke it. Unleavened leaven represents sin, and so this bread was representing a sinless life broken on behalf of us sinners. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And so remembering that Christ died for us. When the meal was finished, he raised a cup of wine. And he said, this fruit of the vine is representative of my blood, which is shed for you. The cup that he lifted was the third cup of the Sabbath meal, of the, of the Passover meal, the cup of fellowship. And it's through the blood of Christ that we have fellowship once again with God. It's through the blood of Christ that we have peace with God. It's through the blood of Christ that the new temple is greater than the old temple. Jesus, you said, take and drink in remembrance of what you've done on our behalf. And so we do so now with thanksgiving. Let's stand, church. We thank you, God, that we are the family of God and that together you have knit our hearts through the common bond of Jesus' blood, that we are forgiven, blood-bought saints. We stand before you justified. I pray that with our lives we would make you first in all things. That we would willingly, generously give as you have given of our time and our talent and our treasure, Lord. So that all the people of the earth may know that you are God and that there is no other. That is our message. We sing, we close by singing, I love you, Lord. And I pray that with our lives we would do more than just sing it. I pray that we would live it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.